Among the most important and also hotly contested issues before the public today is that of our public schools, public education. Uh, is there indeed a crisis there? If so, what is the nature of that crisis? And how best to address the challenge of educating our young people as effectively as possible, particularly those children who walk into the school schoolhouse doors uh, at a distinct disadvantage from many of their schoolmates. Uh, all kinds of new, somewhat innovative programs have sprung into being in the last few years, and uh, there is some cause perhaps for concern in terms of some of what has been uh, adopted nearly overnight. That is the contention of Diane Ravitch, who is one of the best uh, recognized voices uh, when it comes to issues about uh, education. And her perspective is a distinct one in that uh, her perspective has changed from one that uh, initially uh, invited and welcomed and encouraged such moves in different directions to now a position in which she uh, is deeply concerned about some of these uh, reforms or transformations of the way in which we educate young people and has uh, written most recently a book called Reign of Error, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools, in which she lays out a whole host of forces which uh, seem designed to undermine our public schools at a time when, in fact, uh, she, she would contend we need to be giving them more support, uh, not less. So she served as Assistant Secretary of Education for uh, research in the administration of the first President Bush, appointed by, to the National Assessment Governing Board by President Clinton, and uh, is the author of 10 different books on the topic of education. Again, this most recent book, now available in paperback, is Reign of Error, published by Vintage Books. Diane Ravitch, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I should actually say welcome back, since uh, we have uh, spoken once before on one of your 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 previous books. I do also want to make mention of the fact uh, to our listeners, many of whom are aware of this fact already, I happen to be married to a public school teacher. So I, I come at this uh, with, with that particular background, but nevertheless want to make this as fair and even-handed a conversation as, as possible. Uh, Diane Ravitch, you see, set out in this book to answer some very fundamental questions about uh, whether or not public education is somehow fundamentally broken and whether or not uh, certain uh, so-called remedies might in fact be, uh, be effective. But ahead of that, th what prompted this book to be written as much as anything uh, was an interesting conversation you had with a writer with the New Yorker magazine. Uh, tell us what he said to you that uh, at least to some extent, prompted you to want to write this book and lay it out the way you have. Sure. Well, I was uh, uh, on, on a lecture tour, and, and there was a, a very eminent writer for the New Yorker magazine, David Denby, who writes about culture and usually reviews movies, but he's a brilliant guy. He's written a book on the great books, and uh, he was following me around, and he said, uh, I've talked to your critics, and your critics say, you know what's going wrong, but what about what's going right? And I said, well, David, you just heard me lecture. You know that I have a long list of things we ought to be doing instead of what we are doing. 
And he said, well, why don't you write a book about that? So I said, okay. And about four months later, I had written this book, Reign of Error, which was just inside me. And the, the goal was to say, uh, here are these policies. Uh, well, first of all, the goal was to say, we have people like Bill Gates and Arnie Duncan going around the country saying our schools are broken. And the reality is they're not broken. Our schools actually are doing better today than they've ever done. This comes as a huge shock to people because they've heard so often this uh, mantra, our schools are broken, bring in the private sector uh, to fix them. And what I show in the book using data from the U.S. Department of Education is test scores have never been higher than they are today for white students, black students, Hispanic students, and Asian students. The graduation rates have never been higher than they are today. The dropout rate has never been lower for all of these groups. And so why do people keep saying the schools are failing? Uh, my argument is they have created a crisis. And instead of actually looking at what the real problems are, which is that we have the highest poverty rate among children of any of the modern industrialized nations, we have many children who are homeless. We have many children who never get medical care. Uh, many, many children who are English language learners, many who are, have disabilities. Instead of looking at the real problems that might actually make schools function better, uh, we are being led astray by people who want to privatize our public schools. Um, my argument is that this would be a terrible uh, mistake, as, as well as a tragedy, because privatization doesn't work. And the best example of the failure of privatization is Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Milwaukee, as you know, has had charters and vouchers now since 1990, so it's been almost a quarter century of trying privatization. And yet when you look at Milwaukee, and particularly the performance of the neediest children, Milwaukee is one of the lowest performing districts in the country. So if the rest of the country is supposed to be like Milwaukee, uh, we're in terrible trouble. Hmm. One of the interesting points in your book, we we often think of this as something very recent, that is, this kind of hand-wringing about our public schools and, uh, and then the springing up of, of, uh, of many of these uh, concepts to, uh, to, in a sense, fix that problem. We think of it as relatively recent. I mean, for, for anyone who's not a fan of some of these developments, it seems bewildering. Uh, but, but your book also points out that there's actually a surprisingly long history of people pointing their finger at public schools and and launching criticism of them. This is not as new as it might at first appear to be. Uh, that's true, and and I am a historian of education. Uh, that was my training. That's where I have my doctorate, and uh, I've documented. Uh, since the 1820s, people wringing their hands and saying uh, the, the youth are going to hell in a handbasket, and it's all because of those lousy schools. Well, in the 19th century, there was good reason to say that. They, many of the schools were a real ramshackle affairs. Uh, the teachers were itinerants uh, who couldn't find anything better to do. They had no training, no certification. Uh, you get to the early 20th century, and you've got, uh, in some places, over 100 kids in a classroom because of the huge wave of immigration, and many of the kids coming from different countries, not speaking English, and, again, a teacher who was perhaps two or three years older than the students. Um, and, and so things were pretty rough in public schools. But over time, we understood as a country that teachers need training. 
they need to have certification. You have to have qualified people in the classroom, and you have to have a class size where it's po- possible actually to do, do real teaching. Uh, and I think that that explains why American education has been getting better and better and better. And despite all the naysayers, you just look at the numbers and you say, oh, my gosh, the graduation rate's the highest it's ever been in history. And by the time you look at the age group 16 to 24, uh, something like 90% have a high school diploma. Uh, now you'll have people saying, oh, but it's not, not as good as it used to be in my day. Well, a lot of people who are saying that went to Harvard. And it's true, our typical public school is not preparing kids for Harvard, but that's not their job. Their job is to prepare people to take care of themselves, to have good character, uh, to be good citizens, uh, and to be ready to participate in the society and, and to, to be able to be economically self-sufficient. Uh, but somehow over the past, especially since No Child Left Behind, George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind, and then with President Obama's race at the top, everything now is about test scores. And it's become, it's almost become ridiculous, if not sick, to focus everything on test scores because that means you're talking about a bell curve. Half the kids are going to be on top of the bell curve. Half the kids are going to be on the bottom of the bell curve. And teachers are being told, well, art's not important. Music's not important. Band's not important. Physical education's not important. Foreign language is not important. The only thing that matters are test scores. That's not what, that's not what most people would consider good education. And when people have huge resources, like whether it's Bill Gates or President Obama, they don't send their kids to schools that are focused solely on test scores. They send their kids to schools where there's a rounded education, where the whole child uh, is, is considered, and the development of the child into a responsible adult is the main mission of the school. In the second chapter of the book, you are called The Context for Corporate Reform. You, you sketch out some of the uh, history of this and uh, uh, the history of this most recent move to radically reshape uh, the way we educate young people here in America. And uh, you, you point to that 1983 study called A Nation at Risk, which seems to have first ignited a, a, a significant uh, level of concern and fear o- over this. I wonder, as you look back now at that and, and the, what has sprung into being as, as a response to it, uh, to any ex- do you think it has been a sincere reaction to people, in your view, simply misunderstanding the statistics? Or is this more of a, a conscious effort on the part of some to create an entrepreneurial opportunity for themselves, I mean, to prey upon the public's fears and to make a whole lot of money. I mean, how much of this is sincere concern based on a misunderstanding, and how much of this, in your view, is a concerted effort to capitalize on a baseless fear? Uh, I think that it's one thing merging into another. I think that when that report, A Nation at Risk, came out in 1983 uh, during the Reagan years, uh, President Reagan was hoping that it would recommend school vouchers and school prayer, and it didn't recommend anything like that, but it created a sense of crisis. It said our schools are mediocre, they're, they're, they're part of a rising tide of mediocrity, the rest of the world is overtaking us, and it gave examples like the, uh, Jap- the success of the Japanese automobile industry. Well, in retrospect, uh, we look back and say, uh, you know, we've done pretty well these past 30-plus years since A Nation at Risk came out. Uh, it turns out A Nation at Risk was dead wrong. 
It was also dead wrong about the Japanese automobile industry. The reason the Japanese automobile industry succeeded had nothing whatsoever to do with public schools being good or bad. It was because the automakers continued to make gas guzzlers uh, long after it was clear that the um, uh, Arabs had created a cartel to artificially inflate the cost of gasoline. What did that have to do with elementary and secondary school teachers? Absolutely nothing. So you have a lot of casting of blame of, of the schools are failing, and in fact, the schools were not failing. Um, the truth of the matter, and the same, same is true today, when you look at international test scores, the first thing you should think is these scores don't mean anything. Uh, we're talking about how well the kids take tests when they're 15. And it turns out that the kids from Asia have the highest test scores. The reason being that they are immersed in a Confucian culture where rote learning and test taking is at the core of that culture. Uh, there's a new book just out by a Chinese-American scholar named Yang Zhao, uh, which called Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Dragon? Why China Has the Best and the Worst Educational System in the World. Hmm. Well, it's the best because it produces the highest scores, and it's the worst because while producing those high test scores, it absolutely crushes creativity, original thinking, divergence from authority, and it creates this authoritarian model where the people who make the test have only one right answer and the students have to spend their time preparing to find the one right answer. Uh, consequently, and, and so I'm not criticizing China, but Yang Xiao certainly is criticizing China. He says this is a system that we must not copy in America because America has become the, the greatest nation in the world because it has creative thinkers, because it has people who think differently, because it has people who ask questions instead of looking for the one right answer. <clears throat> as far as uh, the uh, profit-seeking go going on, it's become an outrage. Uh, this talk of crisis is now totally manipulated. As I show in the book, uh, the crisis is caused, frankly, by George W. Bush and, and Arne Duncan and Bill Gates and President Obama is saying every, at every moment our schools are failing because they're not. And what they've done is to create an opportunity for the profit-seekers to move in and say, I have the answer. Well, they don't have the answer. Uh, what we've learned over the past 20 or 25 years is that vouchers don't work. Uh, they, don't, they don't improve test scores. Uh, they don't, they, in some cases, kids are being sent to schools with uncertified teachers and no curriculum. And how in the world is that improving education? Uh, charter schools don't produce better results. In fact, in most states, the charter schools dominate the list of failing schools. So just turning your kids over to a charter school run by a non-educator, somebody like Andre Agassi, who is a great tennis player and a high school dropout, uh, or turning them over to a charter school founded by uh, a, a rock store, a rap store, uh, uh, that doesn't work either. I mean, what works is perfectly obvious, and that's having experienced teachers, having people who are certified to teach and know their subject, and, and having a, a school that cares about the kids and wants to see them succeed in many ways, not just in, in having high test scores. But the money-making is beyond doubt. I mean, I can't open my mailbox, my email box, every day without having dozens of emails about for-profit companies moving in on it, public education, uh, seeing a way to use technology to make a lot of money, and mine the data of the students. This is one of the biggest businesses going is that children's confidential data is being extracted every time they do a keystroke on a computer. Uh, so we'll now have federal tests, federally funded tests, where the data mining is going on all the time and put into a, a federal 
a, a longitudinal data file, and it'll be available to commercial companies. This is uh, actually sickening. We're speaking with Diane Ravitch and talking about her book, Reign of Error, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. A couple of things are going on here, of course, and one of them is this move towards caring so much about test scores, about the numbers. Um, and I, 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 I don't know anybody in my own life, I don't know a single person who likes this, this new reality of all this focus on test scores. And understandably, I have a lot of friends who are public school teachers, but nevertheless, I, I, I don't know a single soul who, who would say that they think this is a great idea. But obviously somebody does because here we are with this reality. One of the things you say in your book uh, that I think for the first time helps me understand why some people might appreciate this is when you say in this sort of atmosphere of, of, of a supposed crisis, the thirst for data became unquenchable. That is, this move towards concrete, tangible test scores is probably one way in which some people terribly fearful for what's going on in our schools would have something to hang on to, uh, a tangible ladder to climb. And and for somebody, th- that actually might be some source of comfort, I suppose. Well, the thirst for data uh, and the thirst for test scores serves the interest of the testing companies. Uh, they have never been as flush with money as they are today. The biggest testing company is Pearson. Pearson has bought up uh, most of the testing contracts. State of Texas gave Pearson a 500, almost 500 million dollars for testing over a five-year period. Uh, It it holds Pearson holds the contract for the GED, which is the test that people take when they didn't finish high school and still want a degree. Pearson holds contract after contract. They are making billions of dollars from the testing industry. And how did we ever get along without having everyone tested at every turn? Uh, actually, it's totally useless to take these standardized tests. Uh, the reason being that the, the companies don't want the teachers to see the questions and they don't want them to see the answers. That means they're useless. This is like get, handing a thermometer to a doctor and saying, take the patient's temperature and don't look at the thermometer. We'll, we'll let you know what it is, but you can't find out what's actually wrong with, with your patient. The teacher can't find out what the student knows and doesn't know because all the teacher gets is a score and doesn't get any breakdown on what the student learned or didn't learn. And very often the results come in when the child doesn't even have the same teacher. So we've created this monster. Um, In Yang Zhao's book about Chinese testing, he calls testing the witch that cannot be killed. Uh, And we are falling into into the clutches of the witch that cannot be killed. And it's this obsession with standardized testing. The best tests are the tests that teachers themselves make because they can find out immediately what children have learned and what they haven't learned. They know what they taught, and they, should, they can write a test once a week or once every month or, or whenever, finding out who can do fractions, where do the kids need extra help, and which kids are zooming ahead and need more challenging material. The standardized tests don't give you any of that diagnostic material, and they're totally useless. And it, this is, again, an instance of, of where big money is being made off our children in a way that doesn't even help them. The other thing you need to know about standardized testing is, it's, it's, as I said before, it's normed on a bell curve, which means half the kids will be in the bottom half. Um, the bottom half will consist overwhelmingly of 
kids who've had less opportunity and also kids with disabilities who for one reason or another are not able to make it through those tests or do well on the test. And that's not true, obviously, of all kids with disabilities because some kids with disabilities are incredibly brilliant. But the kids who are English language learners will do badly because they're English language learners. Uh, the kids from poverty will not do as well as the kids who live in affluent districts. So the best thing that you learn from standardized tests is the affluence or poverty of the students taking the test because those scores are an accurate measure of the, stu- of the family's uh, socioeconomic standing. That means you actually learn nothing from them, and um, this, that's why the, the private schools, uh, the independent schools where the affluent kids go, don't hardly ever use the standardized test because they're worthless. And, of course, your, your book goes on to make, in some respects, an even more important point that we are not only taking, giving these tests, uh, but then we are taking the results and, in a sense, clubbing to death those schools which have more disadvantaged students who cannot possibly do as well as more advantaged students. And those very students who need to have a deeper, richer educational experience uh, find themselves in schools that, uh, that, that are deprived of resources or in other ways punished because of these test scores. I mean, it's a vicious cycle you are describing here. Yes, absolutely. And I think that in time we will look back on this era with the start of No Child Left Behind and then the addition of Obama's Race at the Top is the worst, most misguided era in American history as far as education goes because customarily you have a community that rallies around the community schools, uh, tries to help them if it can, seeks more resources where they're needed. And instead of that, we have a federal policy that's actually hurting schools, closing schools, firing teachers, firing the entire staff and calling it a turnaround. And there's no evidence that any of this is working. Uh, And in fact, if you look back from, let's say, 2001 to today, it's been a generation of kids that have moved through the schools. And I think we have to conclude that what Arne Duncan and Bill Gates and George W. Bush and his crew call reform has been a total failure. But instead of saying, you know, guys, we tried this and it didn't work, they're saying, uh, let's just fire more teachers, fire more principals, close more public schools, hand them over to the private sector. They're, they're doubling down on their failed policies. And that's pathetic because they're actually doing harm to American education. Uh, I, I have a blog which a lot of people read. And uh, yesterday I commented on, on the fact that Arne Duncan has withdrawn the NCLB waiver from the state of Washington. What that means is that He's been handing out waivers to something like 43 states saying they do not have to meet the, the absurd requirements of No Child Left Behind. And No, no Child Left Behind, written in, in 2001, said that by the year 2014, which is right now, 100% of your children have to be proficient uh, or you face terrible sanctions. Well, it's 2014. Nobody has met that goal because no state in the world uh, or no nation in the world has ever met that goal. And... Arne Duncan's been giving out waivers to states saying, all right, you don't have to meet the goal. It is a ridiculous goal. But the state of Washington said, well, we are not going to do everything Arne Duncan tells us. Arne Duncan wants us to measure the quality of our teachers by the test scores of their students, and we've looked at the research, and that doesn't work. We're actually punishing teachers because they're teaching low-performing kids, and that doesn't work. We're not going to do it. So Duncan withdrew the waiver from the state of Washington, 
and now every school, almost every school in the state of Washington will be labeled a failing school, no matter what its test scores, no matter how much it's improved, no matter how affluent the community, no matter what the school, it, every school will now be a failing school. This is uh, the federal government doing harm to the entire state of Washington, and I've never seen anything like this in the history of American education. Duncan has gathered to himself the level of power to be like the national superintendent of schools, and he doesn't seem to have any knowledge of the idea of federalism. One of the uh, one of the things that seems to be of, of most bewildering to you is the support which President Obama has given to this kind of educational reform. Can you help us understand uh, why he would uh, support these kind of measures with his race to the top, which you view as, in some ways at least, even more potentially injurious than uh, No Child Left Behind? Well, race to the top is worse than No Child Left Behind. And trying to understand Obama's motivation is very difficult because he always describes race to the top in very glowing terms, which are not accurate. Uh, and he talks about how it was written by teachers and people at community levels, and that's totally not true. It was actually written by people who were charter school advocates. And so Race at the Top said, uh, we, this was back in 2009, right after the election, and he announced Race at the Top. It, the, it says, and it's not a law, it's a federal program, uh, the U.S. Department of Education got almost $5 billion from the Congress as part of the Economic Recovery Act, uh, right after that deep depression we were heading into. So the Department of Education had almost $5 billion, and they created this contest for states. And they said, if you want to be eligible to get any part of this money, you must have more charter schools. So hand over more of your public schools and public dollars to private entrepreneurs. Now, how did that get to be in, the, in a democratic program? Uh, you must tie the evaluation of teachers to the test scores of their students. This is uh, a failed experiment. When wherever it's been tried, it's failed. Um, and you must uh, adopt uh, college and career-ready standards. They actually wanted to say you must adopt the Common Core standards, but then they, they said, well, let's make it a little bit more ambiguous and just call them college and career-ready standards. But everybody knew it was the Common Core. So that's why we now have this huge national controversy about the Common Core because there was no open discussion or open debate about about these as national standards. They were just simply forced upon the states if you, uh, by the law of federal dollars uh, without that open discussion. And now there's enormous pushback against the Common Core because uh, teachers are beginning to use it and say, uh, my kids can't do these things. And, and who, whoever thought that this was appropriate for a second grader, whoever thought this was appropriate for a first grader. Um, and. I think that Race to the Top will turn out to be one of the great disasters of American history. Hmm. You tell us about a couple of different ways in which people with no significant legacy in the world of education are stepping into this arena armed with ideas and, and innovations, but with absolutely no data to back them up uh, and, and making assumptions erroneous assumptions uh, about the, the nature of children and what it means to educate children well. And I think one of the most interesting uh, points you make is when you suggest that, uh, that some of, of these sort of 
let's call them outsiders or reformers entering the arena, seem to view children as though they're crops and that the matter of, of how you best raise corn, for instance, uh, is, is a very straightforward matter. Um, and, 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 and thus the same procedures and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, and, and strategies should, should essentially work on every child. But you go on to explain that children aren't corn. They aren't a crop. Uh, you can't think of them that way at all. Um, explain a little further what, what you're talking about there. I think it's a very important point. Well, I'm uh, someone who grew up in a family of eight children, and I, I understand just from my own life how different children are. And we all went to the same school, we all had the same teachers, and we all turned out very differently with different interests. Uh, I think that anybody who has any understanding of children, anyone who has taught, recognizes that children don't learn in the same way or, or at the same pace. And, and some uh, actually will blossom late. Uh, I was just reading yesterday the biography of Stephen Hawking and how he, there was a time when he was considered a slow student and he turned out to be one of the most brilliant men in the world. So you really can't project what children are going to be, but you can just make sure that you, as an educator, give them lots of opportunities uh, to try out different skills and talents, to encourage them to learn, and, and hopefully to instill in them a love of learning so that they will pursue their own interest uh, when they're not in a classroom. Uh, many of the people who have called themselves reformers, and I, I think one of the things that troubles me most about what's happened is that the word reform has become so corrupted uh, that it's now a dirty word. Uh, we used to think that reformers were people who wanted to make schools better. Now we know that they're people who want to privatize and destroy public education. Uh, but if you think of someone like Bill Gates, I mean, he, he, here he is probably the richest man in America, uh, worth many, many tens of billions of dollars. And if he has an idea, the, uh, the U.S. Department of Education adopts it. Uh, cities and states line up to, to try it. And he has no idea about about public schools. He didn't go to a public school. His kids don't go to public schools. Um, he never taught. And yet uh, he'll have an idea while uh, uh, walking on his treadmill and looking at videotapes, and then suddenly everybody has to do what he says. This makes no sense at all. He knows nothing about teaching. He knows nothing about cognitive development. He knows nothing about anything but his own children uh, who go to an elite private school. <coughs> You could say the same thing about Arne Duncan, uh, except that he's not worth tens of billions of dollars. Uh, he never taught. Uh, he was a, a bureaucrat working for Mayor Daley in Chicago, got a lot of money from the Gates Foundation, and now he's telling schools what they should do. And, and if they don't do what he says, uh, he closes them down. And you could go on and on with these so-called reformers, and you will find very few of them who've ever taught uh, and the one, only one I can think of offhand is Michelle Rhee, who taught for two or three years in Teach for America uh, and then went on to become um, a, a union basher, teacher basher, so forth. And, and she sort of seems to have momentarily at least retired from the movement, but uh, I believe she'll be back. Uh, but th there's just a, a raft of people who are now circling the schools uh, as potential sources of money, because the, I think that the reform goal, understanding the corruption of the term reform, the reform goal is to have lots and lots of children in a classroom because the reformers say that class size doesn't matter, even though researchers say it absolutely does matter, and teachers say it, that's their number one priority is to have a smaller class so that they can help the kids who need extra help. But the reformers say since class size doesn't matter, they want to put kids in a classroom 
with an inexperienced teacher, maybe someone who just graduated college, uh, like Teach for America, uh, have lots of computers in the classroom, buy more and more technology, uh, and think of the savings. Nope, you have all these inexperienced teachers who leave after two years, and uh, so they never collect a pension. They probably never use their benefits. And all these guys are looking at is how to make a profit with the new technology, whether it works or not, um, and how to cut the cost of, of the most the biggest item in education, which is the cost of teachers. And the way you cut costs is to have inexperienced teachers who come and go with frequency, but that's not the way to have good education. You spend a great deal of time in your book talking about poverty and the huge difference that poverty makes in the life of a young, uh, of, of a young child or, or, or young person. And you write this at one point. It is easy for people who enjoy lives of economic ease to say that poverty doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter to them. It is an abstraction. For them, it is a hurdle to be overcome, like having a bad day or a headache or an ill-fitting jacket. But for those who live in a violent neighborhood, in dingy surroundings, it is a way of life, not an inconvenience. Children who have seen a friend or relative murdered cope with emotional burdens that are unimaginable to the corporate leaders who want to reform their schools or close them down. Uh, I think one of the things that's most distinctive about your book is, is, is the frankness with which you speak about poverty. Because, of course, a lot of people uh, in, uh, in, uh, in public office, for instance, or in, uh, in positions of authority, uh, find it difficult to talk about poverty uh, in a way that doesn't sound maybe condescending or in a way that doesn't sound like they're making excuses for bad choices that people have made. I mean, it's, it is fraught with tension when one talks about this, but you obviously believe that we need to talk about this frankly and honestly. I think uh, that it's terribly important to talk about the burdens that children live with, which are of no causing of their own, and in many cases are not the cause of, you know, their, their parents didn't impose these burdens on them, but I think we have to trace poverty to its roots, which is not in a personal failing. It's usually in the economy. I think what is so terribly wrong today is that we have allowed the people with the greatest wealth uh, to capture control of the taxing policies so that um, they're basically getting away paying very little taxes and accumulating billions and billions of dollars while large numbers of our citizens are falling out of the middle class and into poverty. And since we don't want, and in the public discourse, to say anything about that, uh, because that's considered off, off the table, uh, we instead talk about fixing schools and firing teachers. It's so much cheaper to fire teachers and close schools and open charter schools, and then let the charter school fails and open another charter school uh, and go on in this fashion rather than say it's wrong for one man to have $80 billion. And there ought to be a tax structure that caps that kind of income, uh, that kind of wealth accumulation, and that makes sure that the people uh, who are at the bottom uh, have opportunities for work. I'm not, don't, not suggesting that the tax structure should pay people for being poor, but should give them the opportunity to work. Uh, I was very moved by the Ken Burns series on the Roosevelt's, and the, the reiteration of Teddy Roosevelt and then Eleanor and then Franklin, that if we help everyone, we help everyone. Uh, we're now living in a period of extreme greed. 
and the people who have the most are saying that poverty doesn't matter. Hmm. Well, you know, as I said in the book, it doesn't matter to them, and they're doing everything possible to keep people in the state legislature, to keep, uh, to elect governors and to elect congressmen who will say uh, it's every man and woman for himself or herself uh, because the state's not going to help you. Hmm. Well, that's that. it takes us back about 100 years. I mean, we're back to the age of the robber barons. You also make a very interesting point that I wanted to make sure you had a chance to talk about. When you say this, and this has to do with, in a sense, parents taking ownership, uh, whatever that means, of, of, of education, and not just parents, but, uh, but, but all of us. You write this, a public school belongs to the public whose taxes built it and maintain it. It does not belong to the parents whose children are enrolled this year. Parents whose children are enrolled this year should not be given ownership of a school that belongs to the entire community and to future students and parents. Um, although in this particular case you're talking about something very specific, the so-called parent trigger laws, um, you're also, I think, speaking uh, about this matter that, that we need to view our public schools in a sense more holistically as part of the community and not as small little factories churning out students. Yeah, yes, in that section I was discussing the parent trigger, and the parent trigger is an idea cooked up by these so-called reformers as yet another way to privatize public schools. And uh, in California in particular, and although many other states have now adopted parent trigger laws, and the theory behind it is if you can get the signatures of 51% of the parents, you can actually close the school, turn it over to a private charter operator, and take it out of the public domain. And I found this very offensive because there is such a thing as public responsibility. And I started thinking of all the things we have in our society where we expect the public to be responsible. Uh, we have a publicly funded police force. Uh, we, don't, we don't each have our own security guard. Uh, we have a fire department that is a community fire department. We expect the public to be responsible for the uh, protection of us in terms of our air and our water and our, uh, you know, the, the, the pe- people who fly airplanes. I mean, there are just a number of ways, whether it's public highways, public beaches, public parks. Uh, and so as I thought about the parent trigger, it seemed to me that you could think of an analogy like people being in a public bus and saying, we don't like the bus, let's take a vote and privatize it. We'll take control of this bus and sell it to somebody. I mean, it's simply nonsense, and it's part of this uh, reformer effort to privatize as much as they can for, for private profit. Uh, and, and I think that my argument has been uh, throughout the book that public schools are a basic democratic institution, and there is underfoot right now the same kind of push for privatization through charters and through vouchers that we see uh, in, in the prisons and the hospital sector where private companies have been formed to take these places over, and they do a terrible job. They do a worse job than the public sector, uh, and they push out the, uh, the the people that they don't want. And in the case of the prisons, they want more prisoners uh, because it's more business for them. And we have to get that economic – we have to get the greed factor out of public institutions so that they're run for the benefit of all of us rather than the uh, enrichment of, of a few of us. In whatever time remains, I, I want to make sure that you have a chance to say that uh, what, what we talked about at the very beginning, that this book is not just uh, a litany of, of 
complaints. It's not just hang, hand-wringing about a very uh, uh, ominous situation, but that you do take considerable time to offer up some very concrete, very tangible thoughts on what we can do about this, uh, on, on, on what can be done to reverse what you see as a, a disastrous course. Yes. Well, the book has uh, two sections, really. The first section is saying this is what we're doing now, and it's a ter- these are all terrible ideas, and it's all leading to, <clears throat> to privatization of our public schools, which is wrong. Uh, none of the high-performing nations of the world have privatized their public schools, and none of them have charters and none of them have vouchers. Uh, but the last third of the book is devoted to what we should be doing instead, and some of it has to do with things that schools do, like reducing class sizes, enriching the arts, making sure that kids have access to uh, medical care so that they come to school healthy. Uh, a lot of, of the rest of the solutions, though, have to do with social responsibility for reducing poverty and making sure that uh, families have the support they need They need to help their children. So it's, it's what other countries recognize, which is that... Uh, Families and children are not simply on their own, but that there is a social responsibility that we have to make sure that children come to school ready and prepared to learn, and also that teachers are well prepared to teach, and that we have high standards in our school, uh, but that those standards are realistic and based on, on uh, what teachers can best do for children, where they can make judgments about, teach- about what they teach and have professional autonomy. The book is Reign of Error, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. It is now a paperback from Vintage Books and the author, Diane Ravitch. Diane Ravitch, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about this important book. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Bye-bye.